at Sif Pop. We're your movie friends. But are friends really friends? If you don't know them. So grab a popcorn. And head over to our row. So we can chat movies. Like friends do. There's always room. For more movie friends. So sit back. Relax. And enjoy the show. Welcome. 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 To the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. My name is not Aaron. It is in fact Robert. I'm one of the two editors at SifPop.com, and today I'm joined by SifPop.com staff writer Shane Canto. Thank you for having me, not Aaron. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that's what you have to call me, just not Aaron. Um, <laughs> Shane and I are here today to talk about some of the biggest movie releases of April 2023. We're going to be talking about Air, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Bo's Afraid, Evil Dead Rise, Renfield, Peter Pan and Wendy, and the Super Mario Bros. movie. And we each have one extra wildcard movie at the end that we're going to bring up to discuss shortly. Um, time codes are in the episode description if you only want to hear us talk about certain movies. And we won't be discussing spoilers, so you're safe on that front. Lastly, we're going to be rating each and every one of these movies on the classic Sif Pop scale of like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay. So with that, Shane, let's get into these movies. Let's start um, alphabetically like I always do on this show. And start with Air, which on uh, IMDb, the synopsis or summary reads as such. Follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led Nike in his pursuit of the greatest athlete in the history of basketball, Michael Jordan. Uh, Shane, I've done most of the talking so far, so I'm going to throw it over to you. Air, did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, just okay? I really liked it. Almost loved it. Um, And this is, yeah, it's the... Wait, was that that movie about Michael Jordan's feet? Yes, it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which, this is probably one of the most thoroughly entertaining movies that came out this year. This is one of those kinds of things you throw it on and you're just going to have a good time the whole time. Everybody's a little quippy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of 80s music. It's Mm -hmm. real smooth. Like, you could tell Ben Affleck was having a lot of fun directing this. You could tell a lot. Everybody was having a lot of fun making it. Because, like, how couldn't right. you have fun when Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Jason Bateman, and Chris Tucker are all just hanging out together? Um, and Viola Davis in a few scenes. Well, and I was going to say, Viola Davis is, like, she's a legitimate, like, anchor to this movie. It's just, like, that, I feel like that, and that, there's one scene with Matt Damon and Jason Bateman that kind of, like, elevate this a bit in terms of, like, the emotion and the depth of the movie. But, like, this is definitely a really strong return to form for Ben Affleck after whatever Fly By (laughs) Night was. Live By Night, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a Rush song. Uh, Live By (laughs) Night. (laughs) I'd rather listen to the Rush song than sit through Live By Night again. Yeah, Um, it's not great. (laughs) True. (laughs) Very true. Um. I think I'm a little bit lower on air than you are. And I'm, I meant to mention this up top, but mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of these movies with you. There are like a lot of fun things to get into with a lot yeah. of these. Um, and this is one of them because I think I'm closer between it's okay and uh, like it. Um, I didn't dislike it, but to me, I, it felt very akin to she said last year, um, both of which feel like a bit of shallow imitations of the type of genre that they're in. So they each play the hits and they each have the moments um, for their genre, but they're just kind of the skeleton. They're not, they don't really have much meat on the bones for me. Um, 
this one is better than she said, I think, but like, it's like, Oh, this is the scene where, uh, Carrie Mulligan is, is ignoring her husband. You know, like she gets too into her work. And for, in the case of air, it feels more like Moneyball, where she said is spotlight or all the president's men. But for both of them, they're like, they're just missing a little bit more, but I, I agree that air is very electric. It's, it's so much fun. Um, because of that hyper fast editing, but at the same time, I feel like the conflict is is like a bit artificial uh, because it's kind of like we got to make this deal. We can't. How about we try this? Okay, we tried this and it worked. And it's just like it kind of chronicles, and, and the conflict doesn't really work for me. To be honest, like when I heard this movie was going to be a thing, it's just like why? Yeah, and like at least this movie's fun and entertaining. Um, oh, 100%. Which I'm glad they didn't make She Said That because that would not work with that topic. But, like, sure. this is about a bunch of shoe uh, salesmen trying to get Michael Jordan to agree to make Air Jordans. Like you said, it's a bit artificial. It's that kind of thing where it's just like, okay, this is going to happen. <laughs> it happens. Um, is the ride f- engaging and interesting and dynamic? Probably not, but it has a lot of fun 80s songs and, you know, everybody seems to be having a good time. So why mm-hmm. can't I? So, I feel like that's the right. kind of vibe that you get from the movie. Right. It's definitely like a good time. I'm just saying like anything more you're probably not going to get. Well, that's uh, what like I, th- if I recall, I gave this like a B, like mm-hmm. however scale you want to do is like a B yeah. or like a, what I would consider like a four out of five. It's like. I had above average amount of fun watching this, but like I couldn't quite give this like an A because I'm just like, what was the point? Right. <laughs> yeah. They signed so, Michael Jordan. Great. Well, the point we is. We didn't even see Michael Jordan. <laughs> that, that's another thing I want to get into in a minute. But uh, it, I like the message in general about like putting a face uh, of the of the people who are actually driving the the brand's recognition uh, mm-hmm. giving them a lot of the profit. Like that's great. And, um, Affleck and Damon, that's what they're doing with their production company. So it's kind of putting their money where their mouth is by, by kind of marrying the idea with yeah. their production company and with this, this movie. When it's also funny that Amazon is the one who produced <laughs> this movie. Uh, um, but that, that's, that's there, but it's not too deep. I wanted to ask if you knew, was this a for hire job for Ben Affleck? Did someone say like, "Hey, can you write a movie about Nike?" Or was this like one of his passion projects? I don't know. It feels like a passion project kind of thing. And and was it a passion project because he cares that much about Air Jordans, or like he cares that much about the eighties and want to make like a fun eighties <laughs> yeah. movie? I don't know. Um, you could definitely tell he had a lot of fun with the eighties. Just mm-hmm. look at his outfits. I was gonna say his look. <laughs> Just look at him. So it it would be interesting to find out. But like, you know, if it weren't for the cast, I think especially Matt Damon and Viola Davis, like this wouldn't be something we're really talking about. Yeah. And so like you get a bunch of famous people that are really strong actors like how could you not laugh at Chris Messina and Matt Damon yelling at each other on the phone? It was entertaining, but it's like, it is what it is. And you have a couple of moments that feel like I'm watching a movie, like the whole speech that he gives 
to the Jordans and then the whole thing with Mrs. Jordan on the phone. Like, you can really tell, like, this felt like you were watching a movie staged mm-hmm. this way. And, you know, they were, those are well-written parts, but, like, highly doubt any of that happened that way. Though I think there is something to be said about uh, a cast elevating a movie, you know, mm-hmm. because this, like like we've said a couple of times, this is more than watchable. Like, this is thoroughly entertaining. Yep. If there was a bad cast, it would possibly be unwatchable or just boring, you know. So there is something to be said about a good cast elevating the work, which kind of brings me to something that you alluded to, which is why didn't they show Michael Jordan's face? I know I've heard Ben Affleck say he didn't want it to be distracting, but to me it was more distracting that he wasn't shown and that he didn't have <laughs> that he had like one line of dialogue that said hi, how are you? Yeah, I feel like if you're trying to be like it's not distracting, but then every single shot you make is to not show his face. Yeah. It is like why aren't they showing his face? <laughs> so, I don't know. It's which it feels a little ironic, I guess, because it's like the whole entire thing is about like putting somebody's name and image to like their yeah. own thing. And then they refuse to show the image of said person in this movie. And, you know, they had that Jeff Bezos money. So like they could have done something. Right. If they even <laughs> want to go like, the Luke Skywalker deep fake route or something. Yes. Which, that's a whole other conversation that's oh, super yeah, frustrating. Sure. I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> I could just imagine, though, they're like, well, we have the money. And it's just some random teenager, just young Michael Jordan's face graft on his. <laughs> I, I, I've also heard Affleck say, Michael Jordan is too iconic. They didn't want to try to recreate it. And I would just push back on that a little bit and being like, they didn't have many scenes of him playing basketball. And for what they did, they just showed like the actual highlights. Yeah. So they could have just had some guy come in and say a couple lines or just sit there and yeah, it would have been, wouldn't have been distracting, but uh, well, you know, every other movie that had an iconic central figure, of- I know. just don't even try. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> That's an interesting precedent to, to say. <laughs> Well, the next time they do like a like a biopic, I better not see their face. They're just too iconic. Everything be like the last scene in Shazam where you see Superman from shoulders down. Um, any final thoughts on Air? It's fun. I had a fun time, and if you want to have a fun time with your dad in particular, I think you have a blast going and watching this movie. A hundred percent. Matt Damon's been on a roll with those lately with this and Ford v. Ferrari from a couple oh, years ago. Ford v. Ferrari is the best dad movie of the past like 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right there up there. <laughs> Better than this one for sure. And I, I like I like both of them. Um, let's move on. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Based on the Judy Bloom novel from, I don't know, 40 years ago, something like that. Um, something like that. When her family moves from the city to the suburbs... Um, the synopsis left out the specifics, but moved from New York City to the suburbs of New Jersey, my co-host's <laughs> home state. 11-year-old Margaret navigates new friends, feelings, and the beginning of adolescence. Shane, I had heard of the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, in the past. Um, and I knew that it was about like a girl getting her first period, and that's about yeah. all I knew about it. 
But I was I... very happy to find that it's so much more than that. It's more than just like a period story. It's like a whole coming of age story and everything that comes along with that. Um, so I didn't read the book, but I really, really liked the movie. Yeah, to give a quick bit of backstory, I haven't read any Judy Bloom books. Yeah, me either. But obviously, with her books coming up the band lists across the country, bringing a lot of attention to this. And honestly, mm-hmm. this is a good time as ever to release this. And what's interesting is in conjunction with it, Amazon released Judy Bloom Forever, which is a new documentary about her which i got to watch before i saw this which added a lot of layers to it mm-hmm. and i said this before we started recording I have this get have to get this off my chest i almost gave this a one out of five stars for the <laughs> new jersey shade that happens in it i just would like to ask hollywood to stop taking cheap shots at new jersey we get it we're not everybody's favorite state but you don't have to be an a-hole about it um but this movie there's so many layers to what's going on in this film. And I'm, I've am i been thinking about this since. I don't think I've seen a film that has tackled a young person's journey through faith more interesting or in more depth or as dynamic as this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, most films, it's like if it's about a kid having to go to church, it's like their parents are taking them and stuff like that. Margaret's praying to God. Margaret is processing all these different religions, these ideas, these experiences. And I'm like, there's a lot of depth to this that I did not expect. And I'm glad. And as a 31-year-old man who went to go see this, it's so genuine. And I'm not surprised because it's from the same writer-director as The Edge of Seventeen that yep. had Haley Steinfeld in it, which I love that movie. And I I loved this movie to pieces and just the cast. And I did have a bit of a crisis that Rachel McAdams is like mom in movies now. I was just like, oh, no. Um, But she was like, she's a great actress. She was great in this. And Mm -hmm. what they got to do with her character. And you can tell from the trailer, Kathy Bates was going to be a lot of fun in this movie, too. She's a mood. Her whole entire thing. Her whole entire vibe. And even like they barely show him in the trailers, but Benny Safdie as the dad, he's he's having fun too. But he's a hundred percent in dad mode. Yes, hundred percent. Him being like, Oh, this is great. I always want a lawn chair in the living room. And just like and just like and being excited back. to mow the lawn and all that. <laughs> and cut it. Just the whole entire thing. Yeah. But yeah, th- I I loved this movie, like legitimately loved this movie. This made me really happy. That's great. It shows you how much thought I gave going in because even though it's right in the title, I wasn't expecting the the religion angle in the movie. Uh, But I was just like, oh, this movie looks very sweet and it has some actors that I like. I'm going to watch it. And also, I didn't realize that Kelly Freeman Craig was the director until afterwards. And then it made perfect sense that she was also Mm. the one who did uh, Edge of Seventeen. But yeah, I, I just wanted to agree with what you said about uh, the religion stuff. A lot of movies, and I'm not even a religious person, a lot of, I'm formerly a religious person, person I should be clear about that, um, but a lot of movies like to take shots at religion and kind of put down people who are religious in certain ways, um, especially if it's evangelical Christian, like is one of the, the, the religions that Margaret tries out. But this is very open and very empathetic to a young uh, young girl's 
search just for for meaning and for for purpose and for belonging and the way that it goes about it through you know going to synagogue and going to church and the different types of church it, it's just yeah. really thoughtful and i really enjoy it um and i also wanted to mention eighth grade that this i think this is the movie that like best exemplifies what it feels like to be a child of a certain age uh coming of age since eighth grade in that it doesn't feel like it's written by adults. It's not overwritten. It's not like th- these kids don't seem or don't speak like they're smarter than they are or anything like that. Mm. You know, they're, they're looking at these magazines. They're talking about crushes and all this other stuff. And they're, they're doing their little <laughs> chant. Um, yeah. It's just really great and really honest. And I appreciated that. Yes. Well, yeah. And Abby Ryder uh, Forson, who, captured all of our hearts playing Cassie Lang when she was a little girl. The, it's ugly! I love it! Like the little girl from Ant-Man and Ant-Man on the Wild. Like, this is her. I didn't realize that was her. Man, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, all grown up now. Maybe she could have just played Cassie Lang. I, I know. <laughs> Whole other story. But, like, she does such a fantastic job because she feels very, this movie feels very earnest. And yeah. I think that just captures how connected judy bloom was writing these stories for young girls and making them really relatable like obviously she was an adult writing these books but like she knew what it was like to be a kid and experiencing those things and not trying to condescend them and i have a lot of feelings about faith-based films because the state of faith-based films has frustrated me a lot because you know there's we're in a world where like Ben Hur exists, like mm-hmm. the original, like the first yeah. two, not like the 2016 one, but right. like that Charlton Heston film was one of the it won best pictures, one of the biggest films in the world, and it's deeply faith based. And it's just like there was a time where people cared about making faith based films that were actually good films too. And yep. I feel like this is like you said, this is very open film in terms of that and i don't think there's anything wrong with a young person trying to navigate especially if you're a child of a mixed home with different religions in it and trying to figure out because she tries to explore her faith because she's trying to find that feeling that spark and for you to be a religious person you do have to find that and like I'll admit I haven't had that spark in a long time and I'm a confirmed Roman Catholic and you know, but like I really appreciated that about this film and just one little anecdote, almost every single woman walking out of this movie when I saw it were sobbing, Mm. my wife included and the PR woman that I work with included and everyone's just like, I want to call my mom. And it's just like, it had that much, like poignancy to the experience of it. And I think that's really special. I know. And you mentioned you're a 31 year old man. I'm a 26 year old man. The fact that we are having this sort of reaction to it and um, thinking that it's so good and, and appreciating different things about it says one thing, but the fact that the people who have like directly had these life experiences are feeling seen on screen in this way. Um, yeah. That's, that's another. And yeah. And the way that it captures it and, captures subjects that are often taboo um, yes. and just, again, talks about them openly. And that, I think that's a special thing uh, in a mainstream movie like this, starring big people directed by like 
yeah, successful directors, that sort of thing. Take your kids. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Um, Keep the needle drops coming between the first two movies we talked about. I know, and we're going to have more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on Are You There, God? Nope. My last one is Hans Zimmer did the score. Like, what? What? I love it. It's just so good. Uh, it, <laughs> the guy who did Dune and Gladiator and all that is doing Are You There, God? Like a, like a little coming-of-age movie about a preteen girl. It's just great. Yep. Um, probably the two most similar movies we'll talk about are Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and Bo is Afraid. Um <laughs> Which follows the sudden, following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic odyssey back home. Uh, Ari Aster's third film starring Joaquin Phoenix. Shane, what did you think of Bo's Afraid? What a film. <laughs> it, this it, is the one I was most excited to talk about. The, and I obviously love this a lot more than a lot of people, seeing as mm. I've seen like people... Well, I've seen people I like. I've seen people I don't like be like, this is a zero out of 10, a one out of 10 movie and like should be like destroyed. This is going to kill Ari Aster's career in a 24. I'm like, no, it's not ridiculous. (laughs) No. Okay. Um, And this wasn't even that expensive. This wasn't even like Robert Eggers making the Northman for $90 million. This had a $30 million budget. Yeah. Boy, does a 24 know how to use money. Um, cause like this is indeed, as Ari Aster described the Jewish Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> this is one of the most visceral cinematic experiences I've ever had. And I like to put it, I heard, cause like I've watched, listened to Chris Duckman's video and I appreciated him putting this perspective. There's not one moment in this film that we're supposed to be looking at this objectively from our perspective. Yeah, you are stuck in the brain of a anxiety driven and tortured man. And this is exactly how he sees the world. And it's terrifying. And it gives me a whole level of respect and understanding for my wife who deals with anxiety every day. And when sometimes I don't understand, it's like, why are you like getting this way about things? And I'm thinking like, if this is how you experience the world, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cause yeah. like, obviously it's heightened and extreme. Like the first hour of this movie is one of the most uncomfortable and just insane things I've ever watched. And then it goes from there and it keeps going from there. And besides like, there was a few scenes that I think could have easily been cut out of this movie that I don't feel like added a whole lot. Like, um, there's well, like the daughter of Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane. There's one car a seat car scene that I'm just like, why was that even in here? But I, yeah, that's a good one to, to point out. Yeah. There's a couple of them along the way, but I feel like most of these scenes have purpose. And this is not meant to be a narrative experience. This is not meant to be a traditional film. This is meant to be a poetic expression of like what it's like to have anxiety and guilt. And like, I'm not Jewish, but I am Roman Catholic. I get the guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Like his dynamic with his mother. Mm -hmm. I was just like, 
and Patty Lupin is just like killing it, killing it and everything. But if Nathan Lane doesn't get a nomination for best supporting actor for this movie, I'm gonna be so upset. And I'm just Rod gonna say man. that. <laughs> hey, Bo. What's We're up, my dude? Have... <laughs> What's up, my dude? <laughs> It was that's easily my favorite stretch of the movie. Um, you easily like went ahead and said you love this movie. For me, this is like if there's any movie out there that it's impossible to like pin down like a star rating or to say whether I liked it or didn't or I loved it. It's probably this one. Um, yes. So for the purposes of our of our little uh, spectrum here, I'll say that I liked it. Um, yep. There were there were some things like you were saying that I was just, mostly that I just couldn't connect to not that i couldn't connect to i couldn't see what their purpose was within the thing like i i completely agree it's not like oh here is the third act here is the crisis point you know there's there's no traditional crisis all crisis (laughs) all the time (laughs) that's very true um so i i'm not like talking about it on that level but like up through when he's in the forest i i'm on its wavelength and i'm understanding where it is and what it's doing Past that, it kind of loses me, and that's where I'm like, all right, I don't really love it anymore. When I left, there was a guy behind me who was like, that was a typical Ari Aster movie. Great in the first two-thirds, and then kind of falls apart at the end. And I was like, you know, I can't really argue with that in, in this case. Well, um, that that is an interesting point, because his films are considerably more accessible for two-thirds of them. Yeah. And then pushes you over the edge. <laughs> I don't dislike the last third of Midsommar, but I agree with it for Hereditary. Um, I'm going to sound like a little bit of a hypocrite here because when Joker came out and people were like, oh, this all might be happening in his head. You got to look at it a different way. I was like, okay, come on. I don't think it's that deep. Uh, But for Bo is Afraid, I 100% think it is that deep uh, because that is kind of my theory that it's this is all just an anxiety attack or just his anxiety running wild within his mind. Um, And I don't have anxiety that bad, but I've experienced it at times and I can relate to some of the feelings. Like obviously I've never had homeless people overrun my apartment and destroy everything within it. But like the feeling of, Oh no, I forgot my floss. What is going to happen now? You know that I, I, I understand that feeling. So yeah, I there's there's just so much to this, and I think it's such an interesting movie. Um, you mentioned the Nathan Lane, like that that part is just entertaining on mm-hmm. just a, a base entertainment level, and it's a lot of fun to watch. But also, there's so much more going on underneath. And you also mentioned the uh, this is going to end his career. A twenty four is wasting money. They should be you know held accountable. I I think it's awesome that someone had a vision in their mind and they were given this money to go ahead and realize that vision. And it looks like he made exactly the movie he wanted to make, you know? So like, I love that. Even if it's doesn't connect for everyone. um, I think it's a true artistic swing and I Mm -hmm. admire that for what it is. And I think that sort of thing is important. And I think that people having these kinds of reactions is a great thing also. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of really, really good stuff about it, even if the movie does kind of lose me and um, I just fall off its wavelength at a certain point. 
Also, if you just look at this from a purely artistic standpoint and like a filmmaking perspective, my God, the amount of craft that went into making this with how the camera moves and mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix is just acting his whole whole just existence into this movie (laughs) and like i feel like i didn't think i could see a movie weirder than inherent vice with joaquin phoenix in it and then i watched this and i'm just like oh is this if inherent vice started tripping on acid and cocaine at the same time because kind of feels like smoking weed in a van with teenagers (laughs) just hot boxing somewhere and boy did I never think I would see a more scarier monster in an attic? Oh my goodness! <laughs> this movie. Just leaving that out there for all of you to ponder what I mean by that. You thought Pyman was one thing in Hereditary's attic. Just, just wait for this. <laughs> Whole different kind of attic. That's another thing I really am appreciating about Ari Aster. You know, after Hereditary, it's like, oh, we have a new horror voice or voice on on the scene. And then Midsommar, it's like, oh, this is still horror, but not quite the same type of thing that we've seen. This is like, this is going to make you uncomfortable. You're probably not going to enjoy watching it at points, but it's not horror, you know? Well, I, and there's not going to be a genre to pin him down. Well, I think the most important thing to realize is this is meant to be funny. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, you're supposed to laugh at this whole entire movie. And if you're not, then you're not going to like this movie. But if you're laughing along with it, then I think you're going to have a good time because the forest I section. Oh, I did too. The forest section is like one long dry joke that culminates with this punchline that if like, if you're on its wavelength, it's going to really hit you. But if you're not, you're just going to be like, oh my goodness, what? There's still an hour, 20 minutes left, you know? But I, I was like, all right, where are we going next? <laughs> because for that whole thing to end with the way it does, it's just, it's great. Because you're, you're 100% right. It's hilarious. Yeah. I heard he wants to do a Western. And I'm like, I think bring it. it's like, it's happening with him and Joaquin and maybe Emma Stone is the other name I saw. Like, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm down. Um, Any final thoughts on Bo's Afraid? Yes, but we don't have enough time. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, we'll leave it there. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll finish off by saying the end kind of lost me, but I did go ahead and listen to the Sif Pop proper podcast on this. And Andrew, um, he said he's struggled with similar things. I'm not going to speak for him because I want people to go listen to that. And the way that he, especially in their spoiler section, the way that he talked about the ending and what it all meant, it really unlocked a lot of things for me. And he explained it really logically and um, in a way that, was relatable too. So I think people, people should go check that out as, uh, as well. Um, if I ever feel guilty, that guilty, and I put myself on trial, I want Richard kind to be the one uh, yelling <laughs> at me, my grievances. So there you go. Oh man, that whole ending sequence too bad. We're not doing spoilers. That that's, that's a whole other thing to talk about. Whole other thing. Uh, Shane, we're about halfway through here. Um, so I want people, I want to give people the chance to go find you online. Uh, if the, if you want them to, um, and I know, and I know you probably do. Um, 
Where where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest thing is just to go to the in, my Wasteland Reviewer Instagram page where I shamelessly plug all of the things from my Wasteland Reviewer YouTube channel, Scribe Magazine, SifPop.com, and a couple of different podcasts that I do regularly and show up on, like this one. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and if you want to find me, just go to underscore Rob's Thoughts on Twitter. Uh, and I've been saying this for a few months now, for as long as Twitter lasts. Or you can find me on at Robert's Thoughts on Letterboxd, which hopefully I'll, that doesn't I'll miss away. your tweets when the <laughs> I world of it. Twitter falls. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully there will be some sort of replacement, but I doubt it. Um, and I probably shouldn't just, go on it he's anyway. Just gonna, he's just going to sell it. <laughs> just don't buy can. Letterboxd, please. <laughs> yeah, he probably can. Don't even put that in the universe, Robert. I take it back. I'll... <laughs> I'm I'm going to go to a giant coliseum on a on a rowboat now with Richard Kind. Um, let's talk about our next movie, <laughs> Evil Dead Rise, a twisted tale of two estranged sisters whose reunion is cut short by the rise of flesh possessing demons, thrusting them into a primal battle for survival as they face the most nightmarish version of family imaginable. Shane, I think you're going to have more to say about this than I will, so I'm going to throw it over to you first. Um, I would like to get things started by saying this had the raddest title reveal of any movie ever. Like, yeah. just sitting in the theater, just like, rise! It's like, oh my god! <laughs> and so, I've been a big Evil Dead fan since probably college, when I watched them for the first time. And I really love Sam Raimi and his sensibilities with things, which was mm-hmm. also why I was kind of like, hesitant about watching the 2013 remake which i actually did watch for the first time this weekend um and watching going into this i'm like do i really need to watch a movie with needles and cheese graters and all kinds of stuff like that i'm not gonna make this through this movie am i um i was pleasantly surprised to say at least there's a lot more dark humor in this than i anticipated because like need to cut the tension somehow um this does legitimately feel like an evil dead movie i appreciate them taking it in a new direction the rise part having multiple meanings you know like this is in a high rise apartment Mm. building and no i hadn't even thought of that so there you go thank you yeah so like because everything else has just been in a cabin in the woods or some dark dimension uh Army of Darkness is just like a whole entire other thing. So just put that to the side. But like I appreciated like the this building was like a character and the two lead actresses here. One, Alyssa Sutherland, who is the deadite for most of the film, she kills it like she is just ghoulishly chewing this all up and. Uh, Do you mean these as, as double entendres, chewing it all up, ghoulish? She kills it. <laughs> I'm on a roll, Robert. Don't stop me. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> Lily Sullivan, who's like our protagonist, there, there's a decent amount of heart. Like, I'm not saying this is the most uh, horror movie with the most depth to it, but like, at yeah. least I cared about this family on some level. Maybe not the son. Yeah. <laughs> there got to be somebody who ruins it. <laughs> These movies are so avoidable. Like you That's find kind of the a horror book. thing, though, right? <laughs> yeah, you find a book 
bound in human skin and blood. Don't read from it. Come on now. Um, but like this, if you are super into blood and guts kind of horror, which I'm not, that's not my bag when it comes to horror movies. This has plenty. Like you'll be, I was about to say eating it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Can't be stopped. Um, it's one of those kinds of things where it's just like, this is a perf. like if you love Evil Dead, this is a perfect continuation of the experience. You don't have Ash, so you don't have that connection. But I do think they do a solid job of building up a connection. And I think the two lead actresses bring enough to the dead eye. Like the the whole peephole thing is going to haunt my dreams for a oh, while. Yeah. So at least yeah. there you go, that one. Um, but like, there's a lot of crazy set pieces and stuff like this, and you know the bloodiest elevator since the shining. So I, that was like the exact same shot and the exact same setup yes. as the shining. Um, I'm going to agree with you that I prefer the original three, uh, which I didn't watch in college. Actually, I watched them in like the week or two leading up to this one. Okay. So I was much more fresh on them, you know, in my, in terms of my first time watching them. And those are, you know, the bloody type of horror, but it's the campy type of bloody. Yes. And I can, I'm very much on board with that. I really enjoyed those first three, especially Army of Darkness, which I think is my favorite. Bow to um, the king, baby. <laughs> give me some sugar. Um, like, and I was I was the same way. The 2013 one, all of a sudden, is just very dark and very, like the 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 gore is like intense goriness. Instead of he cuts off his hand and and holds it down with farewell to arms, you know, like that. That's that's so much fun, and these are like legitimately scary. So I'll give them that. Especially Evil Dead Rise, I think is really scary. Um, that's about all I can really say about it, though, <laughs> because I'll be honest, I'm probably worse than you in terms of like not wanting to watch this type of movie. I was sitting there with my hand in front of my face for a lot of it, you know, just like peeking through just a little bit to to not miss what's happening, but also avoid seeing what's on screen because this is not the type of horror for me. No, there, there's certain things that go on in this movie. That's just like, I know I don't need this in my life. Thank you. No, you're right. It's <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, so I went to go see the covenant on like a weekday evening and I yeah. walked by the prime theater in the AMC that I went to was playing this and mm. I'm just hearing all the sounds and I'm just like, having one of those ptsd flashbacks to like so <laughs> like back to nam just being like because the the sound design in this movie is off the charts and that's probably one of the most terrifying things about it because i'm just like nope i don't need to hear that realistic of flesh on whatever the hell they're doing in this I particular know. scene yeah. but you know it works so right, it's very effective um so I think because of that, we should probably apologize to horror fans who are waiting to hear any sort of actual, you know, substantive conversation about this. But at the very least, if you haven't seen this, you should know that it's a very effective horror movie. It, if yes. you're a horror fan, this is going to give you exactly what you want. Um, yeah, it's all the tropes. It has all of the guts what that you want. Yeah. Yeah. And Lee Cronin directs the hell out of this like mm -hmm. he really dove in that that's one thing i can say about what fetty alvarez did with the 2013 one too was like they know the job and what they're trying to accomplish with an evil dead movie 
and they do their homages. They do effective work on their own. And I like this movie. It does really stick to the Evil Dead formula. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really do anything fresh narratively. But, you know, a different setting, the mother-child dynamic, that gives something a little bit more fresh to it to sink your teeth into. Uh-huh. <laughs> Had to get one last one in there, Robert. <laughs> you had to take one last stab at it. Uh, speaking of the direct, <laughs> speaking of the direction, I wanted to also mention that about eighty percent of this movie is shot in split diopter, which <laughs> you don't see very often. But there's, it felt like every other shot was a split diopter. And I was like, yeah. all right, there's a good choice. Let's move on to our other horror adjacent movie, Renfield. <laughs> Renfield, Dracula's henchman and inmate at the lunatic asylum at the lunatic asylum for decades, longs for a life away from the count, his various demands, and all of the bloodshed that comes with them. Shane, I know that you were really looking forward to this one, uh, and I actually didn't see your letterbox rating or your review or anything. So, what did you think of this? I was pretty disappointed, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kinds of things where it's like you have such a good concept and then you blow it on stupid narrative choices that are just like. But why? Like, I feel like, one, this movie is 95-ish minutes. This could have easily been, like, an 80-minute thing of just Dracula and Renfield. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shocking. (laughs) Um, But. You named your movie that, after all. So, here's the good. I would watch a whole entire Dracula series starring Nick Cage's Dracula. And they teased us at the beginning, having him in, like, the old movie. I'm just like, Mm -hmm. I want this. And (laughs) I won't give away what he says at the end of the movie, but his last three lines are Nick Cage legendary. Of, like, just... Nick Cage was in a movie that he deserved much better in. And Nicholas Holt is a really talented actor, and there's mm-hmm. certain films I don't like him in. Like, I just don't like his beast in, like, the X-Men movies. I'd sure. much rather see him doing, like, The Menu, which, my God, is he... He's incredible. Incredible. <laughs> this, there's so much potential. And they just wasted him. Like, the scenes and, th- like, those therapy sessions, like, that stuff works great. And this, as a metaphor for toxic relationships, is the best part of this movie. But then it's over-edited, crappy action. Ridiculous. Like, I thought Evil Dead Rise was bad in terms of blood and guts. And this is just going all over the place. And then why the hell do I care that Aquafina or Ben Schwartz are in this movie? Their characters and their stories. Like, I like both of them. And Ben Schwartz got a couple of good laughs out of me. But besides that, I'm like, why is this the story they're trying to tell when we have this Renfield Dracula thing going on? It's just one of those perplexing things. And, like, you have this amazing, like, post-apocalyptic concept and world and then you're like let's just waste it on a half-baked romance like i've seen way too many movies like that and i was really disappointed to walk into this movie being like wow this was about like police corruption and what yeah so you hit like each and every one of my talking points because i think we almost completely agree 
Except some of your positives I don't even have because I genuinely <laughs> completely hated this movie. Yep. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage is the one bright spot for like 40% of his scenes, which is only like 25% of the movie. So you do the math yeah. and whatever percentage that is. He has fake teeth, fake Dracula vampire teeth, and they affect his acting. Like you can tell he was uncomfortable and he like can't move his face or emote the way he should. And yeah, that, that is just so bad. And most of his dialogue is just take over the world monologues. And it's like, come on, you can't even be campy when you're doing that. You and I and Rowan and Foster saw Cocaine Bear together. And this kind of reminded me of that in that like they're both attempting to be B-movies. They're both attempting to hit that that sweet spot, but they both miss because they're trying to be it because it's like a cynical attempt instead of just earnestly trying to make a good movie that falls into that category. Um, Cocaine Barry likes a lot more, but it's similar yeah. in, in that, like it has this whole other plot line that's away from what people are going to, to see it for. Like the cocaine bear also has like police corruption and drugs and that sort of stuff. And Ren, uh, Renfield has that also. It's like, what are we doing? You got Nicolas Cage hamming it up as Dracula. That's all you need. Just like let him be silly a little bit more. And at least you'll have a watchable movie. I genuinely thought this was unwatchable apart from like a fraction of Nick Cage's scenes. Um, you literally hit on all my points. So that, that's everything I have. Nicholas Holt was fine. But Aquafina and Ben Schwartz are in different movies, which shouldn't have even been in this movie in the first place. Correct. They were they were in a movie that I did not want to be in this movie. Or and like I because it didn't work. If you do no. that and you make those things work and make them interesting, fine. But you didn't. So then they're just distracting and then making you sit there the whole entire time is like when's my Nick Cage coming back? <laughs> and just like and you don't nearly get enough of him in this movie, so then it's just no. like what was even the point? And you called your movie Renfield and Renfield is like gone for 15 minutes at a time as they do the mob boss stuff. Anyway, um, let's move on to the Super Mario Bros. movie. The story of the Super Mario Bros. on their journey through the Mushroom Kingdom. You know, I think that's a perfect synopsis because that's about all that... Ha- that like, There's no plot. That's, you know, they, they leave Brooklyn, go to the Mushroom Kingdom and have, have, have an adventure and then it's done. Um, that's not to say it's bad because I actually kind of liked it. It's perfectly serviceable is it a good movie that's another conversation but i did like the movie that it is there is so much made of chris pratt going in before the movie and i i think he's fine he's kind of enjoyable he's not that bad jack black is great keegan michael key is great um Uh, robert do i have enough time to sing peaches in its entirety (laughs) if if you want to i'll keep it in (laughs) oh my god jack black you could throw him in any movie, and he's just get like Illumination didn't deserve Jack Black. <laughs> Jack Black just rolled up into this movie like, kids, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just the the fact if I really, really hope this gets nominated for best original song for Peaches because 
if they play this at the Oscars, that's going to be, I guarantee you, right now, that's going to be the best moment of the whole entire show, is Jack Black showing up in a Bowser tuxedo, <laughs> sitting behind a big piano, just going all in on this, because he's like the only character with any kind of depth, because like they go in this whole entire just fantasy land infatuation that he has for princess peach <laughs> it's like where'd he get this like and you know yeah, what have they met before <laughs> who knows <laughs> doesn't matter not to bowser <laughs> he already made up his mind um it, there were so many moments that remind me of darth helmet from space mm. boss it's just like just bowser as a character is by far the best thing in this movie and jack black kills it and yeah, so much, and trust me, even of myself making a big deal about Chris Pratt being Mario, just yeah. like, it, he was fine. He did a good job. Charlie Day, barely in it. Um, yeah. Sociopathic little star from, uh, uh, from Mario Galaxy, also second best thing in this movie, because like, oh my god. <laughs> I, that was so unexpected and demented in the middle yeah. of this movie. I appreciate Anya Taylor-Joy's performance and that Peach isn't a damsel in distress. So great. Um, Donkey Kong? No. You mean Seth Rogen? <laughs> yeah, it's not Donkey Kong. It's Seth Rogen singing the Donkey Kong rap. Uh, it's When he just started going, like, <laughs> I'm just like, no. Just stop. You just and hear stray Seth Rogen laughs in the Mario movie and in a Spielberg movie. Like, what is going on? At least he was a lot more interesting in... At least he was playing an actual character in The Fablemans. <laughs> He's not attempt... Even men, men are like, what's Donkey Kong? He's just a big monkey. And it's just like, no, he's not! <laughs> you just wanted to be lazy. Um, Fred Armisen is Cranky Kong, though. I had some fun with that. But, like, I'm just thinking about the alternative universe where Sebastian Maniscalco was Mario. Because apparently he auditioned for Mario. I'm just imagining, you know, me and my wife, we're going back to the house. And just, like... (laughs) But, yeah, there's not... This is as deep as a puddle. Um, And it is beautiful. The action is actually a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. I I have to give them props because they really incorporated a lot of, like, the game dynamics into this movie really well. And for Illumination standards, this is pretty good. But that's setting the bar real low. Because yeah. you know what Illumination does? They make the most passable, mediocre, crowd-pleasing movies that are almost instantly billion-dollar movies. <laughs> so, like... That's what they, they did, did here again. because it just it just passed a billion like a day or two ago. So they did it. And now we get the Super Smash Brothers universe. Most likely. In this case, though, it, it works, you know, because, yeah, I don't know. I, I prefer this to something like Despicable Me 12 or Minions 8 or whatever, because, you know, it, it's it was fun. It's not yeah. just gibberish. Um I would I have here's bringing back the needle drop conversation. I would have preferred just more Mario music because driving on Rainbow Road and listening to Take on Me is just like, wait, what? What are we doing here? You have 
dozens of Mario games and music to choose from to adapt, and you're just doing pop songs that don't feel like Mario at all. Like that and the Illumination dog in the bathroom scene in the beginning. I was like, oh dear, we're in for some trouble, but... I it, saw it somebody was real like I saw somebody bring up a really good point that Duck Hunt should have been that dog, and I'm like, mm-hmm. they missed out on a great opportunity, great opportunity there. That would have been starting the uh, the crossover. Um, yeah, yeah, like this movie has become discoursed to death already for some reason, and it's kind of baffling to me because it's perfectly acceptable, plenty of fun. And that's about it. Like, you're not going to ask for any more or less from it. It's exactly what you want from a Mario movie. Definitely not the Super Mario Brothers movie from the early 90s, which is an attra- mm-hmm. which is an affront to everything that Mario is. So, did that better than that. So, yeah, this, this movie's fine. It's fun. This I, movie, I'm sure you've seen it already based on the box office. So, yeah, like... <laughs> Exactly. You and your whole family have already seen it. So, and like this movie is so nondescript and just bland fun that there shouldn't be any discourse around this. It's just like, it is what it is. So just watch it. It's not, it's 90 fast minutes and then boom, you're done. Yeah. You hit on about. 35 different locations in that time. And it's yeah. like you said, boom, you're done. Um, I think that's about all we can say about the Super Mario Bros. movie. So let's move on to our final one. Peter Pan and Wendy, which has a massive IMDb uh, synopsis. So I'm going to shorten it a bit. This is a timeless tale of a young girl who defying her parents' wishes to attend boarding school. Travels with her brothers to a magical Neverland. There she meets a boy who refuses to grow up. Actually, she meets the boy before they go to Neverland. That's how she gets to Neverland. Uh, a tiny fairy and an evil captain, pirate captain, and soon they find themselves in a thrilling and dangerous adventure far, far away from their family and home. Um, Shane, I was listening to the um, Oscars look back pod you did on here on this feed with Aaron, not that Aaron, and Alice. Yep. And you shouted me out a couple times when talking about the Green Knight and David Lowry, who is the director of this one. So I was and happy that did this <laughs> pretty much. I was happy that you and I were the ones who were talking about this on here because we both love and adore the Green Knight. And this one is so middling, you know, it's kind of disappointing how he goes from like all these immaculate sets amazingly lit vistas and all this kind of stuff and like great visual effects, like with the giants and all this kind of stuff and the green night. And then you have bad green screen and shoddy sets and then some good outdoor shots that are color graded to look bland still. And it's just like, how in the world is this the same guy who made the green night? And, (laughs) but like, I, I, it really just did look like they were on a beautiful location and yeah. you just pulled out all the color from it. Like, how is this the same guy who made the green Knight and a ghost story and even friggin' Pete's dragon, you know, like I, I, love I really like that. Movie. Me That's too. Like my number two live action remake of D 
Disney movies. Like, that and Jungle Book are, like, up there. And then this one gets added to the mats at the bottom that's just, like, he accomplished making a Peter Pan movie that made me hate Peter Pan. (laughs) Yeah. Peter Pan was a little a-hole in this. And it's just, like, I was never, like, caught up in the magic of him at all. And then some interesting character choices with backstories and stuff made me hate his guts. Mm-hmm. And then made me like I was not gonna lie, I was already biased to liking Captain Hook because like Jude Law was playing Captain Hook. Jude Law is good, yeah. But then where this movie goes with it, I'm just like, I'm like I haven't been this uncomfortably rooting for a villain since Chappie and oh, Hugh so Jackman's mullet and short shorts, like. Like, Jude Law's Captain Hook, I'm like, I'm 100% in Captain Hook's side on this one. Like, what did you do to him? <laughs> it's one of those kind of things where I'm like, I the the trying to make the villain have layers really backfired in this movie because it made me hate Peter Pan. <laughs> yep. And then I'm just like, kind of want him to beat Peter Pan. And that's not what I'm supposed to feel watching this movie. Um... <laughs> I do give a lot of credit to Ever Anderson. I did really like her as Wendy. And she is the daughter of Mila Jovovich and Paul W.S. Anderson. I didn't know that. Yep. And I think she's going to be a star. Um, Hopefully she just doesn't do her dad's movies. Um, Because then she'll (laughs) wind up like her mom. (laughs) But like... Do the other Paul Anderson. Wrong, wrong Paul Anderson. So many of these kid actors were so bland. Like, the Lost Boys were, like, it's bad when the only thing I remember about it is, like, oh, they made them actually diverse this time. Like, one of them had Down Syndrome and stuff like that. But then did nothing with them. And then Tiger Lily was an actual Native American girl and did nothing with her. (laughs) And... There's so many things in this movie that they did nothing with. And then, like, how was this an hour and 45 minutes when nothing happened? Well, somehow there's, like, 12 minutes of credits, for one thing. it's That surprised me. Oh, because it was on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. See, that's the only thing that made this feel like a Disney Plus original movie. Because it had an obscene amount of credits at the end of it. So uh, Heath reviewed this for the site. And he said it like, I hate to have to do this, but the kid acting is just really bad. And I I agree with both of you. It's a little bit frustrating because I don't want to have to call that out. But like when that is what a lot of your movie hinges on. And there's a lot of kid characters in this movie. And like you said, when Jude Law is so good, it's just look extra bad. Exactly. It's like you got your one professional big name actor like Alan Tudyk and Jim Gaffigan are in this too in smaller roles as the dad and and Mr. Smee. But like, you know, not enough to say like, hey, they're giving a performance. But Jude Law, he's having fun. He's giving a solid performance. And just kind of like the Fantastic Beast movies, which are bad. He's the best part of those. And just yeah. like this movie, which maybe isn't bad, but it's not very good. He's the best part of this, too. Um, it's just like, a little bit disappointing. There's a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, see, I'm going to make a perfect parallel to Hook. So, right. you know, the moments is like, 
Peter? Where they finally realize, I'm like, oh my God, he's Peter Pan. There's moments yeah. like, David Lowry? <laughs> There's like moments where I'm just like, oh my God, it's you. But then the rest of it is just like bland Disney <laughs> movie. I'm just like, like when they go through the clock and then they're in this ethereal place, I'm just like, see, David Lowry did make this movie. And then it just moves on to whatever it's doing. And I'm like, yep. I, cause like there's so much character and personality to Peach Dragon that I don't get. Like, Peach Dragon was a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Like, that original movie is goofy as just nonsense. And somehow they made a really earnest and beautiful little film. And then going into this, I'm like, well, he has Peter Pan to work with. It has to be great. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they didn't have enough Lindsey Sterling in it. Like they did in Pete's Dragon. (laughs) See, that was the key. That's obviously the piece missing here. Come on, David Lowry. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's just mostly disappointing because you know what he's able to do, even on like a one for them basis, because that's definitely obviously what this is you know it's one for that one for me but this is still what we're getting and well i don't know if i, I guess it's up with this to get his next movie fine right it's not like it's not the soulless and lifeless type of stuff of the lion king or beauty and the beast or even aladdin to a certain extent it's you know he did his best but I think he was given certain actors and certain he wrote it too. So it's like, that's still on him, but it's like, well, and I think like he tried to get interesting with their backstories and add layers. And like I said, it came back to bite him right. because now I'm like too much in captain hook camp. And like, you don't want that. You don't want that in a Peter Pan movie. Like you don't right. want to be rooting for Captain Hook to like kill Peter Pan, but like I'm like wouldn't be opposed. <laughs> so I felt at the end of the that? movie, <laughs> which also the big CGI crocodile thing and like the cave and stuff like that. I'm just like there was interesting camera work, but like those scenes just felt like very obvious green screen, and like you could just oh, feel yeah. the green screen. I'm just like even when Wendy's about to walk the plank, you can see the green screen. And it's kind of disappointing when it's those outdoor scenes where he excels so much. Yeah. And like, look what he did with the green Knight. That movie costs like $20 million, like mm-hmm. $25 million at most. And was able to do that. This definitely had more money to its detriment because then they just went headlong into the computer generated crap. Well, the one thing that carries over from the green Knight is a score from Daniel Hart, you know, like mm. this is a good score. I'll give it that. And the green Knight also has a great score, but you know, I think besides, you know, like swords and stuff being in the movie, that's a, and, and the score, those are about the only similarities yeah. between the two movies, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, let, let's wrap our conversation there. Uh, this was the first month of the year that at least out of the movies that I've seen where I'm like, you know what? There are some movies that I wish we could have covered, but since I'm trying to keep it a bit tighter on our runtime yeah. here, I didn't. We didn't Tight. go. But um, I, I'll just mention the titles. I think Paint Mafia Mama, 
Ghosted, The Covenant, and Chevalier are all worth watching to certain degrees. I definitely like Ghosted more than most people. So, uh, yeah, go go look those up if you're interested. Maybe uh, check them out for yourselves. Let's go get into our wild cards before we wrap up. Um, I'm going to let you go first. What's what's your wild card? The one last movie from April that we didn't talk about that you want people to watch. So, I'm selling this completely on one performance. And one performance only. The Pope's Exorcist uh-huh. is such a dumb movie. But when you throw Russell Crowe into that movie, he went hard. Like, he went all in on this. He gives an incredibly charismatic and layered performance as an Italian priest. Like, after you got to see him as Zeus being all Greek, and now I'm like, I get to see him playing this quirky, weird Italian priest in this movie. Like, the anytime Russell Crowe's not on screen in this movie, this movie's so stupid. <laughs> Just like... It's like borderline, like they even have a moment at the end of this movie where it feels like it's setting up a superhero franchise. And like, wow, okay. But Russell Crowe is so great in this. And this is why I love Russell Crowe, because he made this experience for me. Is this objectively a good movie? No. Will I watch this again? Yes. Yes, I will. Did this movie scare me at all? Not one bit. (laughs) what russell crowe is amazing so i thought i'd have fun with that wild card with that i really tried to work it out so i could go see it but i just couldn't find the time i'm gonna watch it whenever it comes to vod or streaming but yeah i'm looking forward to it mostly because of what you wrote in your review (laughs) like i'm i'm pretty excited just for some hammy russell crowe and this this concept um my wild card is How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is a very different movie than <laughs> The yes. Exorcist. Which is an um, objectively good movie. Yeah. This is like a leftist political movie about gasoline you know, companies and pipelines and that sort of thing. And uh, whether you can do uh, political action as a regular citizen or whether you have to resort to maybe definitely terrorism in, in some ways. Um, it, it's like a mix of a serious message movie with like oceans 11 and because of that it's simultaneously really fun and really poignant um and also really intense so um yeah it's got some really good performances it's got some really good filmmaking a score that sounds like tenet surprisingly um i wasn't expecting that but it's got like a ludwig goranson type score but yeah this is just a, a very good movie how to blow up a pipeline it got a limited release, but I think it went wider. So uh, there's a chance it, it could be around you if, you if you're listening to this right when this episode drops. So Shane, those are all the movies we have to talk about, except at the end, since we're far enough into the year, I want each of us to mention what our favorite movie of the year so far is. Last month I was on here with Jake B. Uh, both of our favorite movies of the year so far were John Wick Chapter 4, and mine has not changed. So I want to hear what yours might be. 100% John Wick Chapter 4. Oh my God. This is, I didn't, so in my mind, I'm like, uh, like, I hope that John Wick's like the best movie of the year. 
And little did I know, like, legitimately it is, like, yeah. so far this year. And it's going to be a hard sell to beat it for me. This movie really hits so many different layers of, like, there is so much more depth than I expected out of, like, the fourth movie in this action franchise. Oh, yeah. And, like, I love John Wick. And, like, Donnie Yen is, like, I need a spinoff movie of him, like, immediately. Like, I need a Kane movie. I need <laughs> Akira chasing after Kane movie. Like, that needs to happen. And there's just so much that they do in this world. The action set pieces are amazing. The cinematography, like, Wake Up Academy. If John Wick Chapter 4 doesn't get a cinematography nomination, something's wrong with you. Like, what are you even watching? Like, honestly. And uh, just, you know, Keanu knows exactly what this character is and who this character needs to be. And embodies it so perfectly. And this story had a lot of emotion to it. And a lot of introspection for this character. And also absolutely amazing set pieces from start to finish. Which, if you really think about it, there's like three set pieces. (laughs) This movie's three hours. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I was not expecting that. I'm just like, 45 minutes into one set piece, I'm like... Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's going. Um, there's a lot of films that I'm very excited for the rest of this year. I just hope I hope that I see a movie so great that it unseats this because that means there's some great movies coming out this year. And like we still have Scorsese, we have Nolan, and like there's some we have Dune, we have Barbie. Barbie. There there's some very interesting things coming out the rest of this year, but. Got to give John Wick his due. Leading the charge right now. Uh, We are a third of the way into this year, and John Wick is the king of 2023 so far. So, um, yeah, I think, listeners, if you're listening to this, check back next month to see if anything has unseated John Wick on my uh, favorite of the year list. And when I have. Little Mermaid. (laughs) Definitely Little Mermaid. When I have Sif Pop writers uh, Alice and Heath on to discuss the movies of May, see if their mo- their favorite movies of the year so far are John Wick, or if it's going to be Fast X. Um, but until then, <laughs> quick reminder that Sif Pop Writers Room is a part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media. If you're interested in writing for SifPop.com, or if you want to get in contact with us, then email us at writersroom at SifPop.com. Um, Shane, thank you for joining me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, Robert. I love I love this podcast. And if I can shamelessly plug this particular show on this podcast, like this is a great idea. And I feel very lucky to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate it. We enjoy doing this a lot here. But yeah, until next time, we have to get back to the writer's room. <laughs>